the fairies. Once upon a time, there lived a widow with two daughters. The elder was often mistaken for her mother. So like her was she both in nature and in looks. Parent and child being so disagreeable and arrogant that no one could live with them. The younger girl, who took after her father in the gentleness and sweetness of her disposition, was also one of the prettiest girls imaginable. The mother doted on the elder daughter, naturally enough, since she resembled her so closely, and disliked the younger one as intensely. She made the latter live in the kitchen and work hard from morning till night. One of the poor child's many duties was to go twice a day and draw water from a spring a good half mile away, bringing it back in a large pitcher. One day, when she was at the spring, an old woman came up and begged for a drink. "'Why, certainly, good mother,' the pretty lass replied. Rinsing her pitcher, she drew some water from the cleanest part of the spring and handed it to the dame, lifting up the jug so that she might drink the more easily. Now this old woman was a fairy, who had taken the form of a poor village dame to see just how far the girl's good nature would go. "'You are so pretty,' she said when she had finished drinking, "'and so polite.' that I am determined to bestow a gift upon you. This is the boon I grant you. With every word that you utter there shall fall from your mouth either a flower or a precious stone. When the girl reached home, she was scolded by her mother for being so long in coming back from the spring. I'm sorry to have been so long, mother, said the poor child. As she spoke these words, there fell from her mouth three roses, three pearls, and three diamonds. "'What's this?' cried her mother. "'Did I see pearls and diamonds dropping out of your mouth? What does this mean, dear daughter?' This was the first time she had ever addressed her daughter affectionately. The poor child told a simple tale of what had happened, and in speaking scattered diamonds right and left. "'Really?' said her mother. I must send my own child there. Come here, Fanchon. Look what comes out of your sister's mouth whenever she speaks. Wouldn't you like to be able to do the same? All you have to do is go and draw some water at the spring, and when a poor woman asks you for a drink, give it to her very nicely. Oh, indeed, replied the ill-mannered girl. Don't you wish you may see me going there? I tell you that you are to go, said her mother, and to go this instant. Very sulkily, the girl went off, taking with her the best silver flagon in the house. No sooner had she reached the spring than she saw a lady, magnificently attired, who came towards her from the forest and asked for a drink. This was the same fairy who had appeared to her sister, masquerading now as a princess, in order to see how far this girl's ill nature would carry her. "'Do you think I have come here just to get you a drink?' said the loutish damsel arrogantly. I suppose you think I brought a silver flag on here especially for that purpose. It's so likely, isn't it? Drink from the spring if you want to. You are not very polite, said the fairy, displaying no sign of anger. Well, in return for your lack of courtesy, I decree that for every word you utter, a snake or a toad shall drop out of your mouth. The moment her mother caught sight of her coming back, she cried out, "'Well, daughter?' "'Well, mother,' replied the rude girl. 
As she spoke, a viper and a toad were spat out of her mouth. "'Gracious heavens!' cried her mother. "'What do I see? Her sister is the cause of this, and I will make her pay for it!' Off she ran to thrash the poor child, but the latter fled away and hid in the forest nearby. The king's son met her on his way home from hunting, and noticing how pretty she was, inquired what she was doing all alone, and what she was weeping about. "'Alas, sir!' she cried. "'My mother has driven me from home!' As she spoke, the prince saw four or five pearls and as many diamonds fall from her mouth. He begged her to tell him how this came about, and she told him the whole story. The king's son fell in love with her, and reflecting that such a gift as had been bestowed upon her was worth more than any dowry which another maiden might bring him, he took her to the palace of his royal father and there married her. As for the sister, she made herself so hateful that even her mother drove her out of the house, and nowhere could the wretched girl find anyone who would take her in. The Witch of Fife In the kingdom of Fife, in the days of long ago, there lived an old man and his wife. The old man was a quiet sort, but the old woman was flighty and capricious, and some of the neighbors looked at her askance, and whispered to each other that they sorely feared she was a witch. Her husband was afraid of it, too, for she had a curious habit of disappearing in the evening and staying out all night, and when she returned in the morning she looked quite white and tired, as if she had been traveling far or working hard. He used to try to watch her carefully in order to find out where she went or what she did, but he never managed to do so for she always slipped out of the door when he was not looking, and before he could reach her to follow her, she had vanished utterly. At last, one day, when he could stand the uncertainty no longer, he asked her to tell him straight out whether she was a witch or no. And his blood ran cold when, without the slightest hesitation, she answered that she was, and that if he would promise not to let anyone know, the next time that she went on one of her midnight expeditions, she would tell him all about it. The man promised, and he had not long to wait, for the very next week was the new moon, which, as everybody knows, is the time when witches like to stir abroad. On the first sight of the new moon, his wife vanished and did not return until daybreak next morning. When he asked her where she had been, she told him in great glee how she and four like-minded companions had met at the old kirk on the moor, and had mounted branches of the green bay tree and stalks of hemlock, which had instantly changed into horses. They had ridden swift as the wind over the country, hunting the foxes, the weasels, and the owls. At last they had swum in the forth, and come to the top of Bellamont, and there they had dismounted from their horses and drunk beer that had been brewed in no earthly brewery, out of horn cups that had been fashioned by no mortal hands. After that, a wee, wee man had jumped up from under a great mossy stone with a tiny set of bagpipes under his arms, and he had piped such a wonderful music that, at the sound of it, the very trouts jumped out of the lock below, the stoats crept out of their holes, and the crows and the herons came and sat on the trees in the darkness to listen and all the witches had danced until they were so weary that, when the time came for them to mount their steeds again,
They could scarce sit on them for fatigue. The man listened to this long story in silence, shaking his head, and when it was finished, all that he answered was, And what the better are you for all your dancing? You'd have been a deal more comfortable at home. At the next new moon, the old wife went off again for the night, and when she returned in the morning, she told her husband how, on this occasion, she and her friends had taken cockle shells for boats and had sailed away over the stormy sea until they reached Norway. There they had mounted invisible horses of wind and had ridden and ridden over mountains, glens, and glaciers until they reached the land of the Laps lying under its mantle of snow. And there, all the elves and fairies and mermaids of the north were holding festival with warlocks and brownies and pixies and even the phantom hunters themselves, who are never looked upon by mortal eyes. The witches from Fife held festival with them and danced, feasted, and sang. And, what was of more consequence, they learned from them certain wonderful words which, when uttered, would bear them through the air and would undo all bolts and bars, and so gain them admittance to any place whatsoever they wanted to be. After that, they had come home again, delighted with the knowledge which they had acquired. "'What took you to such a land as that?' asked the old man with a contemptuous grunt. "'You would have been a sight warmer in your bed.' But when his wife returned from her next adventure, he showed a little more interest in her doings, for she told him how she and her friends had met in one of their cottages, and, having heard that the Lord Bishop of Carlisle had some very rare wine in his cellar, had placed their feet on the crook from which the pot hung, and had pronounced the magic words which they had learned from the elves of Lapland, and lo and behold, they flew up the chimney like whiffs of smoke and sailed through the air like little wreaths of cloud and in less time than it takes to tell, they landed at the bishop's palace at Carlisle. The bolts and the bars flew loose before them, and they went down to his cellar and sampled his wine, and were back in Fife as fine, sober old woman by cockcrow. When he heard this, the old man started from his chair in earnest, for he loved good wine above all things, and it was but seldom that it came his way. But my troth, but you are a wife to be proud of, he cried. Tell me the words, woman. I will go and sample his lordship's wine for myself. But his wife shook her head. No, no, I cannot do that, she said. For if I did, and you told it over again, it would turn the whole world upside down. For everybody would be leaving their own lawful work and flying about the world after other folks' business and other folks' dainties. So just bide content. You get on fine with the knowledge you already possess. Although the old man tried to persuade her with all the soft words he could think of, she would not tell him her secret. But he was a sly old man, and the thought of the bishop's wine gave him no rest. So night after night, he went and hid by the other old woman's cottage in the hope that his wife and her friends would meet there. And at last his trouble was rewarded. For one evening the five old women assembled, in low tones and with chuckles of laughter, they recounted all that had befallen them in Lapland. Then, running to the fireplace one after another, they climbed on a chair and put their feet on their sooty crook. Then they repeated the magic words, and presto, they were up the chimney and away before the old man could draw his breath. I can do that too, he said to himself, and he crawled out of his hiding place and ran to the fire. He put his foot on the crook and repeated the words. 
Up the chimney he went, and he flew through the air after his wife and her companions as if he had been a warlock born. As witches are not in the habit of looking over their shoulders, they never noticed that he was following them until they reached the bishop's palace and went down into his cellar. Then, when they found that he was with them, they were not too well pleased. However, there was no help for it, and they settled down to enjoy themselves. They tapped this cask of wine, and they tapped that, drinking a little of each, but not too much, for they were cautious old women and knew that if they wanted to get home before cockcrow, it behooved them to keep their heads clear. But the old man was not so wise. He sipped and he sipped until at last he became quite drowsy, lay down on the floor and fell fast asleep. His wife, seeing this, thought that she would teach him a lesson not to be curious in the future. So when she and her four friends thought it was time to be gone, she departed without waking him. He slept peacefully for some hours until two of the bishop's servants coming down to the cellar to draw wine for their master's table almost fell over him in the darkness. Greatly astonished at his presence there, for the cellar door was locked, they dragged him up to the light, shook him and cuffed him and asked him how he came to be there. The poor old man was so confused at being awakened in this rough way, and his head seemed to whirl around so fast, that all he could stammer out was that he came from Fife and that he had traveled on the midnight wind. As soon as they heard that, the servants cried out that he was a warlock, and they dragged him before the bishop. And as bishops in those days had a holy horror of warlocks and witches, he ordered the man to be burned alive. When the sentence was pronounced, you may be very sure that the poor old man wished with all his heart that he had stayed quietly at home in bed, and never hankered after the bishop's wine. But it was too late to wish for that now, for the servants dragged him out into the courtyard, put a chain around his waist, fastened it to a great iron stake, piled bundles of wood round his feet, and set them alight. As the first tiny little tongue of flame crept up, the old man thought that his last hour had come. But when he thought that, he forgot completely that his wife was a witch. For just as the flames began to singe his breeches, there was a swish and a flutter of air. And a great gray bird with outstretched wings appeared in the sky, swooped down suddenly, and perched for a moment on the old man's shoulder. It gave one fierce croak and flew away again, but to the old man's ears that croak was the sweetest music he had ever heard. For to him, it was not the croak of an earthly bird, but the voice of his wife whispering the magic words to him. When he heard them, he jumped for joy, for he knew that they were words of deliverance. He shouted them aloud, his chains fell off, and he mounted in the air, up and up, while the onlookers watched him in awestruck silence. He flew right away to the kingdom of Fife, and when he found himself once more safely at home, you may be very sure that he never tried to find out his wife's secrets again, but he left her to her own devices. The Clumsy Beauty and Her Aunt There was once a poor widow with a daughter named Ursula, who was as beautiful as a spring day, but as clumsy as could be. The poor mother was the most industrious person in the town, and was a particularly good hand at the spinning wheel. It was her greatest wish that her daughter should be as handy as herself so that she would find a good husband. But any work Ursula touched seemed to tangle or break in her fingers at once. One morning, things were very bad, for Ursula had tried her hand at spinning once again, and once again had tangled the thread. 
Her mother was giving her a good scolding, when who should be riding by their small farm but the king's own son? "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, good woman,' he said. "'You must have a very bad child to make you scold so terribly. Sure, it can't be this handsome girl who's vexed you.' Now the widow knew the prince was in need of a wife, and she quickly devised a plan. "'Oh, please, your majesty, not at all,' she said. "'I was only checking her for working herself too much. "'Would your majesty believe it? "'She spins three pounds of flax in a day, "'weaves it into linen the next, "'and makes it all into shirts the day after.' "'Gracious,' said the prince. "'Then she's the very lady that will catch my mother's eye, "'for she herself is the greatest spinner in the kingdom. "'Will you fetch your daughter's bonnet and cloak, please, madam, "'and set her behind me on my horse? "'Why?' My mother will be so delighted with her that perhaps she'll allow us to marry within the week. That is, of course, if the young lady herself is agreeable. Well, the woman bundled Ursula into her bonnet and cloak and sent her off with the prince before the girl could even protest. But as they rode back to the castle together, the prince was so solicitous and kind that she almost forgot her fear of being found out. When they arrived at the castle, the queen came out to meet her son and was almost struck dumb when she saw a young country girl sitting behind him. But when they dismounted and she saw the girl's handsome face and heard about her incredible feats of spinning, her feelings changed quite quickly. Ursula trembled under the queen's gaze, but the prince whispered in her ear that, if she didn't object to becoming his wife, she should strive to please his mother, so she smiled bravely and made a wobbly curtsy. That evening they all dined together, and the prince and Ursula were getting fonder and fonder of one another, but the thought of spinning still sent a chill to her heart. And sure enough, after they had feasted, the queen led Ursula to a beautiful bedroom, pointed to a heap of fine flax in the corner, and said, "'You may begin as soon as you like tomorrow morning, and I'll expect to see these three pounds and nice thread the morning after.' Then she bid Ursula good night. The poor girl slept little that night and when she was left alone the next morning she began her spinning with a heavy heart. Though she had a nice mahogany wheel and the finest flax she'd ever seen, the thread seemed to break every time she touched it. One moment it was fine as a cobweb, and the next coarse as wool. At last she pushed her chair back, let her hands fall into her lap, and burst out crying. Just then a small old woman with surprisingly big feet appeared before her as if out of nowhere and said, "'What ails you, you handsome girl?' "'Oh,' cried Ursula, "'haven't I all that flax to spin before tomorrow morning, "'and I'll never be able to have even five yards of fine thread of it put together.' "'And would you think it bad to ask poor Kaliak Kushmore to your wedding with the young prince? "'If you promise to invite me, "'all thirty pounds of your flax will be made into the finest thread "'while you're taking your sleep tonight.' "'Ursula was overjoyed.' "'Indeed, you must be there and welcome, and I'll honor you all the days of your life.' "'Very well,' said Kaliak Kushmore. "'Stay in your room till tea-time, and tell the queen she may come in for her thread as early as she likes tomorrow morning.' Ursula did as she said, and the old woman was as good as her promise. The next morning Ursula woke to find thread finer and evener than the gut of fly-fishers. "'What a brave girl!' cried the queen. I'll get you my own mahogany loom brought to you, but you needn't do anything more today. Work and rest, work and rest, that's my motto. Tomorrow you'll weave all this thread, and who knows what may happen. 
she added with a smile. So Ursula spent another day with the prince, and she was so happy in his company that she almost forgot the task ahead of her. But the next morning when she sat down at the queen's loom, she was even more frightened than before. Her trembling fingers couldn't even put the warp in the gears, nor use the shuttle. She was sitting there in the greatest grief when a little old woman with mightily wide hips suddenly appeared before her. She said her name was Kaliat Cromanmore, and she offered the same bargain as Kaliat Cushmore. Eagerly, Ursula accepted, and great was the queen's pleasure the next morning when Ursula showed her fine linen and white as the finest paper. "'What a darling girl!' said the queen. "'Take your ease with the ladies and gentlemen today, and if you have all this made into nice shirts tomorrow, you may present one of them to my son and be married to him out of my hand.' Oh, how poor Ursula trembled the next day as she sat with scissors and needle and thread in hand. She was so near the prince now, and yet maybe would be soon so far from him. But she waited patiently till, a minute after noon, an old woman with a big red nose appeared before her. The woman introduced herself as Kaliak Shronmore Rua, and she made the same offer as the two before her. Ursula accepted with relief, and sure enough, when the queen paid her an early visit the next morning, there were a dozen fine shirts lying on the table. The wedding took place a few days later, and it was exceedingly grand. Ursula's mother was there along with the rest, and at the wedding dinner the queen could talk of nothing but the lovely shirts and how happy she and the bride would be after the honeymoon, when they would be spinning and weaving and sewing shirts without end. The bridegroom didn't much like the conversation, and the bride liked it less but before either could interject, a footman came up to the head of the table and said to the bride, Your ladyship's aunt, Kaliak Kushmore, bade me ask if she might come in. The bride blushed and wished she were seven miles under the floor, but she nodded, and the prince said, Tell Mrs. Kushmore that any relation of my bride's will always be heartily welcome wherever she and I are. It came the woman with a big foot, and she got a seat near the queen. But the queen, who didn't like the interruption, soon asked rather spitefully, "'Dear madam, what's the reason your foot is so big?' "'Faith, your majesty,' said Kaliak Kushmore, "'I was standing almost all my life at the spinning wheel, and that's the reason.' "'I declare to you, my darling,' said the prince, horrified, "'I'll never allow you to spend one hour at the same spinning wheel.' A little while later the footman approached again and said, your ladyship's aunt, Kaliak Cromanmore, wishes to come in, if you have no objection. The prince and Ursula said she was welcome, and she took her seat and drank healths aplenty to the company. But after a minute the queen said, May I ask, madam, why you're so wide halfway between the head and the feet? That, your majesty, is owing to sitting all my life at the loom, said Kaliak Cromanmore. By my scepter, said the prince, my wife shall never sit there an hour. Finally the footman approached again and said, "'Your ladyship's aunt, Koliak Shonmorua, is asking leave to come into the banquet.' Again the bride and the bridegroom said she was welcome, and in came the old woman and settled herself at the table. "'Madam,' said the queen, "'will you tell us, if you please, why your nose is so big and red?' "'Troth, your majesty, my head was bent down over stitching all my life, and all the blood in my body ran into my nose,' said Koliak Shonmorua. "'My darling,' said the prince in all seriousness to Ursula, "'if I ever see a needle in your hand, I'll run a hundred miles from you.' And in this way the clumsy Ursula was relieved of spinning work for the rest of her life, and she and the prince were happily married at last.
The Kildare Puka Once upon a time, there was a big manor house in County Kildare, whose owner was often out of the country on business. When he was away, the servants were left alone to keep up the house, and sometimes they would let things go a bit more than they would have if their master had been home. But, as if the kitchen were rebelling against the being left in disarray, the servants would often hear at night a frightful banging of the kitchen door and clattering of fire irons, pots, plates, and dishes. The longer this went on, the more terrified they all became, and none of them dared to enter the kitchen after the fire had died down at night. One evening they sat up ever so long by the fire, however, telling each other stories about ghosts and fairies. They talked so long that the little scullery boy fell asleep right there, curled in the hearth and he did not wake when they all tramped off to bed. Later, after they were all gone, he was woken by the noise of the kitchen door opening. Startled and suddenly afraid, he peeped out from the hearth, and what would be he see but a big donkey, standing and yawning before the dormant fire. The boy was about to come out from his hiding place and lead the animal back to the barn when he saw it look around, scratch its ears, and say, "'I, weigh, I may as well begin first as last.' The poor boy's teeth began to chatter, for now he knew this was no ordinary donkey, but a puka. Now he's going to eat me, surely, he thought. But the puka had something else to do. He stirred the fire, and then he brought in a pail of water from the pump, and filled a big pot which he put on the fire. After that, he lay down before the fire, so close to the scullery boy that he dared not breathe. At last the pot boiled, and the puka rose again and began a flurry of activity. There wasn't a plate or a dish or a spoon in that kitchen that he didn't fetch and put into the pot. He washed and dried the whole set as well as any kitchen maid and put them all up on the shelves again. Then he gave the floor a good and thorough sweeping. The last thing he did was to rake up the fire and finally he walked out just as nonchalantly as he had come, giving the door a good slam as he went. Well, there was a hullabaloo the next morning when the poor scullery boy told his story. The servants could talk of nothing else the whole day. One said one thing, another said another, but one lazy scullery girl said the wittiest thing of all. Well, said she, if the puka does be cleaning up every that way when we're sleeping, what would we be slaving ourselves for doing his work? So said, so done. Not a bit of a plate or dish saw a drop of water that evening, and not a broom was laid on the floor. Everyone went to bed soon after sundown. Next morning, everything was as fine as fine in the kitchen, and the Lord Mayor might have eaten his dinner off the flagstones. It was a great relief to the servants, and everything went well until the scullery boy, who was now proud of his adventure and had forgotten all his fear, declared that he would stay up one night and have a chat with the puka. He waited by the fire, in plain sight this time, and to tell the truth, he was a little daunted when the door was thrown open and the puka appeared. But he plucked up his courage and said, "'Good evening, sir.' "'Good evening.' said the puka. If it isn't taking a liberty, said the boy, might I ask who you are and why you are so kind as to do half of the day's work for us every night? No liberty at all, said the puka. I'll tell you unwillingly. I was a servant in the time of your master's father, and was the laziest rogue that ever was clothed in bed. So when my time came for the other world, this is the punishment that was laid upon me. To come here and do all this labor every night and then go out and sleep in the cold. It isn't so bad in fine low weather, but if you only knew what it is to stand with your head between your legs, facing the storm from midnight to sunrise on a bleak winter night. The boy was moved, and he said, Is there nothing we could do for your comfort, my poor fellow? Well, I don't know, 
says the puka, but I think a good quilted coat would help to keep the life in me on those long nights. Why, then, we'd be the ungratefulest of people if we didn't feel for you and give you a coat, said the boy. So the next night the boy waited for the puka again, and delighted the creature by holding up a fine, warm horse's coat before him. Between the two of them they got the puka's four legs into the coat and buttoned it down the breast and the belly, and he was so pleased that he walked up to the glass to see how he looked. Well, he said at last, I've a long road to travel tonight. I am much obliged to you and your fellow servants. You have made me happy at last. Good night to you. As he was walking out, the boy cried, Wait! Sure, you're going to go soon. What about the washing and the sweeping? Ah, said the puka, you may tell the others that they must now get their turn. My punishment was to last until I was thought worthy of a reward for the way I'd done my duty. Now you'll see me no more. No more they did, and right sorry they were for having been in such a hurry to reward that puka. Little White Thorn and the Talking Bird Long ago, when the oak trees used in the building the oldest boat at Brest were but acorns, there lived a poor widow whose name was Nenor. Her father had been of noble lineage and had had a large fortune. When he died, he left a manor house, a farm, a mill, and an oven where all the villagers paid to bake their bread. He also left twelve horses and twice as many oxen, twelve cows and ten times that number of sheep, without counting the corn and fine linen. But as she was a widow, Nenor's brothers would not let her have her share of the inheritance. Peric, the eldest, kept the manor, the farm, and the horses. Fanche, the second, took the mill and the cows. The third brother, Warwal, had the oxen, the, gr the great oven, and the sheep. So nothing was left for Nenor but an old ramshackle cottage on the heath, where they usually sent sick animals. When Nenor was moving her bits of furniture to her poor cottage, Fancha pretended to be sorry for her. "'I'm going to behave to you as a brother and a Christian,' he said. "'I have an old black cow which I have never been able to fatten, and which hardly gives enough milk to feed a newborn babe. But you may take her with you. Whitethorn can keep her on the heath.' Whitethorn was the widow's daughter. She was nearly eleven years old and was so pale that people called her by the name of the White Hedge Flower. So Nenor went away with her little pale daughter, pulling the cow along with a bit of rope. And when they reached the cottage, Nenor sent the girl and the cow out under the heath together. Every day and all day long, Whitethorn stayed there looking after Blackie the cow. She spent her time making crosses out of broom and daisies while she sang a melancholy air. And poor Blackie had a hard enough time finding a little grass between the stones. One day, Whitethorn noticed a bird perched on one of the flowery crosses she had just stuck in the ground. The bird was chirping and shaking its head. He looked at her as if he wanted to speak. The girl went nearer to the bird and listened carefully, but she could understand nothing. Still, Whitethorn was entranced with the little bird, and she watched it so long that night began to fall. She had forgotten about Blackie. At last the bird flew away, and as Whitethorn followed him with her eyes, she saw that the stars were twinkling in the sky. Then she looked for Blackie but could not find her. She called. She struck the tufts of broom with her stick. She went down into the hollows where the rainwater had formed little pools, but all in vain. Blackie was not to be found. At last the child heard her mother calling as if some misfortune had befallen. Frightened, Whitethorn hurried toward her, 
and at the entrance to the field on the path leading to their cottage, she saw the widow kneeling near Blackie. The wolves from the forest had gotten her, and nothing was left of her but bones and horns. Whitethorn burst into tears and fell on her knees by her mother. At the sight of her daughter's grief, the widow tried to comfort her. "'Do not weep for Blackie as if she were a human being, my darling,' she said. "'Even though the wolves and bad Christians are against us, heaven will have pity on us. Come, help me to pick up some firewood and let us go home.' Whitethorn did as her mother said, but the tears trickled down her pale wan cheeks. "'Poor Blackie,' she said to herself. "'She was no trouble to lead about. She ate anything, and she was beginning to get fat.' That evening, Whitethorn would eat no supper, and during the night she awoke again and again, thinking that she heard Blackie lowing at the door. Finally, just before daybreak, she was convinced she heard the cow just outside in the field, and she ran out into the fields barefoot and in her petticoat, but Blackie was not there. As she came near the heath, however, she beheld the same bird that she had seen before perched again on the cross of broom. He was singing and seemed to be calling her but she understood him no better than she had the day before. She was about to run home when she looked down and saw what she thought was a gold coin lying at her feet. She tried to turn it over with her toe, but it was not a coin. It was the magic herb of gold that you can only see at sunrise if you are barefoot and half-dressed, and if you see it, the fairies will bestow on you the gift of sight. And so it was. The moment she touched the herb, she understood the language of the birds. Whitethorn, I want to do you a good turn. Whitethorn, listen to me, the bird was saying. Who are you? asked Whitethorn, very much astonished that she could understand the bird. I am Robin Redbreast, said the bird, and each year I am allowed to make a poor girl rich. This time I have chosen you. Oh, Robin, Robin! cried Whitethorn. Will I be rich enough to have a shining silver cross with a shining silver chain to go about my neck, and a pair of wooden shoes for my feet as well? You shall have a golden cross and silken shoes, answered the bird. And what must I do to have all that little bird? asked Whitethorn. You must follow me wherever I lead you, Robin said. I will do it, said Whitethorn. And so Robin Redbreast flew off, and Whitethorn went running after him. She followed him across the fields and through the woods until they came to the dunes just opposite the Seven Isles. There the bird stopped. "'Can you see anything below on the beach?' asked Robin. "'Yes,' said Whitethorn. "'I see a pair of wooden shoes and a wooden staff.' "'Put on the shoes and take the staff,' said Robin Redbreast. "'I will,' said Whitethorn, running down to the beach. "'Now,' directed Robin, "'you must walk on the sea till you reach the first island.' Then you must go round it till you come to a rock all hidden beneath reeds that are the color of the sea. And then what must I do? asked the girl. You must gather the reeds and make a halter. That will be easy enough, said Whitethorn. And then with your wooden staff you must strike the rock as hard as you can until it cracks open. That did not seem easy, but Whitethorn did as she was told and carried out all the bird's instructions. With the magic shoes she walked on the sea to the first island. She went round it till she came to the rock with the sea-green reeds. With these she made a halter, as the bird had directed. Then with her wooden staff she struck the rock as hard as she could. Instantly it cracked open like an egg, and out of it clambered a cow with skin as smooth as a maiden's cheek, 
and eyes as soft as the light of dawn. She was very gentle, and the white thorn delighted, put the halter on her and led her over the water, then through the woods and then over the fields and across the heath until they reached the widow's cottage. When Nanor saw the cow, she was as happy as she had been sad before, but she was happier still when she milked the cow, for the milk flowed like the water of a spring. Nor filled all her pots and pans, then she filled her wooden bowls, then her crocks and then her churns, yet still the milk flowed on. It seemed as if the beautiful sea cow, for that is what the talking bird had named her, had milk for all the babes in Brittany. Soon everyone was gossiping about the widow's cow, and people came from far and near to look upon her. The richest farmers offered to buy sea cow, and each offered a higher price than the others. At last Parrot came and said to his sister, "'If you are a Christian, you will remember that I am your brother, and you will let me have the first offer. Let me have sea cow, and in exchange I'll give you nine of my own cows.' "'Sea cow is not only worth nine cows,' answered the widow Nanor. "'She is worth all the cows that are grazing in the highlands and the lowlands.' Thanks to her, I shall be able to sell milk in all the marketplaces from Dinan to Carhay. Very well, said Peric. Give her to me, sister, and I will give you our father's farm where you were born, with all the fields and plows and horses belonging to it. Nanor accepted Peric's offer. So they all went to the farm, and after Nanor had dug up a clump of earth in each field, drunk a cup of water from the well, lighted a fire on the hearth, and cut a tuft of hair from each of the horse's tails to prove she had become the owner of all these things. She gave Sea Cow to her brother Peric, and Peric led the cow away to a house he had in another quarter of that country. Little Whitethorn cried when she saw her dear Sea Cow led away, and she was sad all that day. When night fell, she went into the stable to put hay in the mangers. The horses seemed to look at her with sympathy. Alas, she sighed, why is Sea Cow not here too? Hardly had she spoken when she heard a gentle lowing, and as she had stepped on the golden herb and knew the language of animals, she understood these words. Little mistress, here I am again. Very much astonished, Whitethorn turned quickly. Right behind her stood Sea Cow. Oh, Sea Cow, cried the girl, who brought you here? I do not belong to your wicked Uncle Peric, said Sea Cow, because I cannot belong to anyone. But then said little Whitethorn. My mother will have to give back the farmhouse, the fields, and the horses. Not at all, answered Sea Cow, for they were hers by right. Her brother took them from her unjustly when your grandfather died. But my Uncle Peric will come to look for you here, said Whitethorn. I will tell you what to do, Sea Cow said. First go and pick three verbena leaves. Whitethorn ran off and quickly returned with the three leaves. Now, said Sea Cow, rub me with those leaves from my ears to my tail, and whisper softly three times, St. Ronan of Hibernia, St. Ronan of Hibernia, St. Ronan of Hibernia. Whitethorn did as she was told, and as she whispered for the third time, Sea Cow was transformed into a horse. The girl was wonderstruck. Now, said the horse, your Uncle Peric will not know me. My name is no longer Sea Cow, but Sea Horse. When the widow heard what had happened, she was delighted. The very next day she hastened to try her fine new horse. She loaded her back with corn to take to the market, and you can imagine her surprise when she saw Sea Horse's back growing longer and longer the more she piled on the stacks of corn, so that she alone could carry as many sacks as all the horses in the parish put together. You may be sure that the news of it soon spread abroad. 
When Nenor's brother Franke heard of it, he came to the farm and asked his sister if she would sell him the horse. She refused, until he proposed to give her in exchange the mill and all the pigs he was fattening. So the bargain was struck, and Nenor took possession of the mill as she had of the farm, and then let her brother lead Seahorse away. The very next evening the horse was home again, and again Whitethorn picked three of verbena leaves and rubbed her from ear to tear tail, repeating the words, St. Ronan of Hibernia, three times. No sooner had she done so than the horse changed into a sheep. Instead of white wool, she was covered with scarlet wool, as long as hemp and as soft as flax. Seahorse was now sea lamb. Whitethorn was so delighted and called her mother, who came into the stable to admire this new miracle. "'Go and fetch the shepherd's shears,' she said to Whitethorn. "'The poor dear beast is weighed down with such a heavy fleece.' But when she tried to shear sea lamb, the wool grew again as fast as she cut it off, so that this sheep alone was worth all the flocks on the mountains. Now Nanora's third brother, Rewal, happened to be passing by, and he saw what was happening. He at once offered to exchange his oxen, his heaths, and all this, his sheep for sea lamb. So the widow gave Rewal the sheep, but as he was leading sea lamb away along the shore, suddenly she threw herself into the waves. She swam to the smallest of the seven isles. The rock opened to let her pass and closed again, and she was gone. This time Whitethorn waited in vain for her to come home. She came back neither that day nor the next day nor ever again. So the girl ran off to the hawthorn bush to look for the talking bird, and there he was singing away as before. I was expecting you, said the talking bird. Sea lamb has gone and will never return. Your wicked uncles are punished as they deserved, and now you are an heiress. You are rich enough to wear a golden cross and silken shoes as I promised you. Now my work is done and I shall fly away. Always remember that you were once poor and that it was a little wild bird that made you rich. And so the talking bird spread his wings and flew away. Whitethorn never saw him again, but out of gratitude she was always kind to animals, especially to wild birds, and she always gave to the poor. The Giant Stairs On the road between Passage and Cork, there is an old mansion called Ronane's Court. It was there that Maurice Ronane and his wife, Margaret Gould, kept house, and their arms are still carved on the old chimney-piece. They were a mighty worthy couple, but had only one son who was called Philip. Immediately upon first smelling the cold air of this world, the child sneezed, which was naturally taken to be a good sign of his having a clear head. The subsequent rapidity of his learning was truly amazing, for on the very first day a primer was put into his hands, he tore out the ABC page and destroyed it as a thing quite beneath his notice. No wonder, then, that both father and mother were proud of their heir, who gave such indisputable proofs of genius. One morning, when he was just seven years old, however, Master Phil went missing, and no one could tell what had become of him. Servants were sent in all directions to seek him, on horseback and on foot, but they returned without any tidings of the boy, whose disappearance altogether was unaccountable. A large reward was offered, but it produced them no intelligence, and years rolled away without Mr. and Mrs. Ronane having obtained any satisfactory account of the fate of their lost child. Nearby the mansion lived one Robin Kelly, a blacksmith who served the Ronane family, and who had been a great friend to young Master Phil. He was a handyman, and his abilities were held in much estimation by the lads and the lasses of the neighborhood, including the young boy for besides making plow-irons and shoeing horses, which he did to great perfection, 
He interpreted dreams for the young folk, sang Arthur O'Bradley at weddings, and was so good-natured a fellow that he was known by half the county. Now it happened that Robin had a dream himself, and young Philip appeared to him in it. Robin thought he saw the boy mounted upon a beautiful white horse, telling him how he was made a page to the giant Mahon McMahon, who had carried him off and who held his court in the hard heart of a rock. The seven years, my time of service, are clean out, Robin, said the boy, and if you release me this night, I'll be making of you forever after. And how will I know, said Robin, cunning enough even in his sleep that this is not simply a dream. Take this, said the boy, for a token. And at that word, the white horse struck out with one of his hind legs and gave poor Robin such a kick in the forehead that thinking he was a dead man, he roared as loud as he could after his brains and woke up calling a thousand murders. He found himself in bed, but he had the mark of the blow, the regular print of a horseshoe upon his forehead as red as blood. Robin Kelly, who never before found himself puzzled at the dream of any other person, did not know what to think of his own. Robin was well acquainted with the giant stairs. They consist of great masses of rock which, piled one above the other, rise like a flight of steps from ever, from very deep water and up the bold cliff of, of Karigmahon. Nor are they badly suited for stairs to those who have legs of sufficient length to stride over a moderate-sized house or to clear the space of a mile in a hop, a step, and a jump. Both these feats the giant McMahon was said to have performed in the days of old, and the common tradition of the country said that he dwelled still within the cliff up whose side the stairs led. Such was the impression that the dream made on Robin that he determined to put truth to the test. It occurred to him, however, before setting out on this adventure, that a plough iron would be no bad companion. He knew from experience that it was an excellent lockdown argument, having on many occasions settled a little disagreement very quietly. So putting one on his shoulder, off he marched into the cool of the night. He walked all the way to the harbor. There he knocked on the door of an old friend of his, Tom, who on hearing Robin's dream promised him the use of his skiff, and moreover offered to assist in rowing it to the foot of the giant stairs. So together they embarked. It was a beautiful still night, and the little boat glided swiftly along. Only the regular dip of the oars, the distant song of a sailor, and sometimes the voice of a belated traveler at the ferry of Carigolo broke the quietness of the land and sea and sky. The tide was in their favor, and in a few minutes Robin and his friend rested on their oars under the dark shadow of the giant stairs. Robin looked anxiously for the entrance to the giant's palace, which, it was said, might be found by anyone seeking it at midnight. But no such entrance could he see. His impatience had hurried him there before midnight, and after waiting a considerable while in a state of suspense not to be described, Robin, with pure vexation, could not help exclaiming to his companion, "'Tis a pair of fools we are, Tom, for coming here at all on the strength of a dream.' "'And whose doing is it?' said Tom, but your own. At the moment he spoke, they perceived a faint glimmering of light proceeding from the cliff, which gradually increased until a porch big enough for a king's palace unfolded itself almost on a level with the water. They pulled the skiff directly towards the opening, and Robin Kelly, seizing his plow iron, boldly entered with a strong hand and a stout heart. Wild and strange was that entrance, the whole of which appeared formed of grim and grotesque faces, blending so strangely with each other that it was impossible to define any one. 
The chin of one formed the nose of another. What appeared to be a fixed and stern eye, if dwelled upon, changed into a gaping mouth, and the lines of the lofty forehead grew into a majestic and flowing beard. The more Robin allowed himself to contemplate the forms around him, the more terrific they became, and the stony expression of this crowd of faces assumed a savage ferocity as his imagination converted feature after feature into a different shape and character. At last, he tore his eyes off them and advanced through a dark and devious passage, whilst a deep and rumbling noise sounded, as if the rock was about to close upon him and swallow him up alive forever. Now, indeed, poor Robin felt afraid. "'Robin, Robin,' he said to himself, "'if you were a fool for coming here, what in the name of fortune are you now?' But as before, he had scarcely spoken when he saw a small light twinkling through the darkness in the distance like a star in the midnight sky. To retreat was out of the question, for there were so many turnings and windings in the passage that he considered he had but little chance of making his way back. Therefore, he proceeded towards the bit of light and came at last into a spacious chamber, from the roof of which hung the solitary lamp that had guided him. That single lamp afforded Robin abundant light, enough to see several gigantic figures seated around a massive stone table, as if in serious deliberation, although no word disturbed the breathless silence which prevailed. At the head of this table sat Mahon MacMahon himself, whose majestic beard had taken root and in the course of ages grown into the stone slab. He was the first who perceived Robin. Instantly starting up, he drew his long beard from out of the huge piece of rock in such haste and with so sudden a jerk that the rock was shattered into a thousand pieces. "'What seek you?' he demanded in a voice of thunder. "'I come,' answered Robin, with as much boldness as he could put on, for his heart was almost fainting within him. "'I come to claim Philip Ronayne, whose time of service is over this night.' "'And who sent you here?' said the giant. "'Twas of my own accord I came,' said Robin. "'Then you must single him out from among my pages,' said the giant. "'And if you fix the wrong one, your life is forfeit. Follow me.' He led Robin into a hall of vast extent and filled with lights, along either side of which were rows of beautiful children, all apparently seven years old, and all dressed exactly alike in green. Here, said Mahone, you are free to take Philip Ronayne, if you will, but remember, I give but one choice. Robin was sadly perplexed, for there were hundreds upon hundreds of children, and it had been years since he had laid eyes on young Philip. But he walked along the hall as if nothing was the matter, side by side with Mahone, whose great iron dress clanked fearfully at every step sounding louder than Robin's own sledge when he battered it on his anvil. They had really, they had nearly reached the end of the hall without speaking when Robin, seeing that the only means he had was to make friends with the giant, determined to try what effect a few soft words might have. "'Tis a fine, wholesome appearance the poor children carry,' remarked Robin. "'Although they have been here so long, shut out from the fresh air and the blessed light of heaven, "'tis tenderly your honor must have reared them.' "'Aye,' said the giant, "'that is true. "'So give me your hand, for you are, I believe, "'a very honest fellow for a blacksmith.' "'Then all the young boys began to whisper among themselves, "'and Robin, looking at the huge hand the giant was offering, "'suspected a trap. 
Therefore, instead of his own hand, he presented his plow iron, which the giant seized and twisted, grasped around and round again if it had been a potato stalk. On saying this, all the children gave a shout of laughter. In the midst of their mirth, Robin thought he heard his name called, and looking round quickly, he put his hand on the shoulder of the boy who he fancied had spoken. And he cried out at the same time, "'Let me live or die for it, but this is young Phil Ronane.' "'It is Philip Ronane, happy Philip Ronane,' said his young companions. "'In an instant the hall became dark. "'Crashing noises were heard, and all was strange and confusion. "'But Robin held fast to the boy, "'and a moment later found himself lying in the grey dawn of the morning "'in the carved entranceway again, the boy clasped in his arm. "'They scrambled together into the waiting skiff, "'which Tom began to row away in a hurry.' and when Robin looked back over his shoulder at the giant's stairs, there was no doorway to be seen. The story spread soon enough that young Master Phil was returned to his family, and Robin Kelly was he who had rescued him. "'Are you quite sure, Robin, it is young Phil Ronane you have brought back with you?' was the regular question, for although the boy had been seven years away, his appearance was now just the same as on the day he went missing. He had grown neither taller nor older in look, and he spoke of things which had happened before he was carried off as if they had occurred yesterday. "'Am I sure? Well, that's a queer question,' was Robin's reply, seeing the boy has the blue eye of the mother and the foxy hair of the father. To say nothing of the wart on the right side of his little nose, I recognized him right away myself.' However, Robin Kelly may have been questioned. The worthy couple doubted not that he had delivered their child from the power of the giant McMahon, and the reward they bestowed on him equaled their gratitude.' Philip Ronane lived to be an old man, and he was remarkable to the day of his death for his skill in working brass and iron. It was believed he had learned this skill during his seven years' apprenticeship to the giant Mahon McMahon, and he put it to use working in the smithy side by side with Robin Kelly for many years. John Connors and the Fairies there was a man named John Connors who lived near Kilnery, Killerney, and was the father of seven small children, all daughters and no sons. Connors fell into such rage and anger at having so many daughters without any sons that when the seventh daughter was born, he would not come from the field to see the mother or the child. When the time came for christening, he wouldn't go for sponsors and didn't care whether the wife lived or died. A couple of years after that, a son was born to him, and some of the women ran to the field and told John Connors that he was the father of a fine boy. Connors was so delighted that he caught the spade he had with him and broke it in, broke it on the ditch. Why? He hurried home then and sent for bread and meat, with provisions of all kinds to supply the house. There are no people in the parish, said he to the wife fit to stand sponsors for this boy, and when night comes, I'll ride over to the next parish and find sponsors there. When night came, he bridled and saddled his horse, mounted and rode away toward the neighboring parish to invite a friend and his wife to be godfather and godmother to his son. The village to which he was going was Beaufort, south of Killarney. There was a public house on the road. Connor stepped in and treated the bystanders, delayed there a while, and then went his way. When he had gone a couple of miles, he met a stranger riding on a white horse, a good-looking gentleman wearing red knee breeches, swallow-tailed coat, and a Caroline hat. That's a tall hat. The stranger saluted John Connors, and John returned the salute. The stranger asked where he was going at such an hour. 
I'm going, said Connors, to Beaufort to find sponsors for my young son. Oh, you foolish man, said the stranger. You left the road a mile behind you. Turn back and take the left hand. John Connors turned back as directed, but never came to a crossroad. He was riding about half an hour when he met the same gentleman who asked, Are you the man I met a while ago going to Beaufort? I am. Why, you fool, you passed the road a mile or so behind. Turn back and take the right-hand road. What trouble is on you that you cannot see a road when you are passing it? Connors turned and rode on for an hour or so, but found no side road. The same stranger met him for the third time and asked him the same question, and told him he must turn back. But the night is so far gone, said he, that you'd better not be waking people. My house is nearby. Stay with me till morning. You can go for the sponsors tomorrow. John Connors thanked the stranger and said he would go with him. The stranger took him to a fine castle then and told him to dismount and come in. Your horse will be taken care of, said he. I have servants enough. John Connors rode a splendid white horse, and the like of him wasn't in the country round. The gentleman had a good supper brought to Connors. After supper, he showed him a bed and said, Take off your clothes and sleep soundly till morning. When Connors was asleep, the stranger took the clothes, formed a corpse just like John Connors, put the clothes on it, tied the body to the horse, and leading the beast outside, turned its head towards home. He kept John Connors asleep in bed for three weeks. I wish that were me. The horse went towards home and reached the village next morning. When the people saw the horse with the dead body on its back and all thought it was the body of John Connors, everybody began to cry and lament for their neighbor. He was taken off the horse, stripped, washed, and laid out on the table. There was a great wake that night, everybody mourning and lamenting over him, for wasn't he a good man and the father of a large family? The priest was sent for to celebrate... <laughs> to celebrate mass and attend the funeral, which he did. There was a large funeral. Three weeks later, John Connors was roused from his sleep by the gentleman who came to him and said, It is high time for you to be waking. Your son is christened. The wife, thinking you would never come, had the child baptized and the priest found sponsors. Your horse stole away from here and went home. Sure then, am I not long sleeping? Indeed then you are. It was three whole days and nights that you were in that bed. John Connor sat up and looked around for his clothes, but if he did, he could not see a stitch of them. "'Where are my clothes?' asked he. "'I know nothing of your clothes, my man, and the sooner you get out of this, the better.' Poor John was astonished. "'God help me, how am I to go home without my clothes? If I had a shirt itself, it wouldn't be so bad, but to go without a rag at all on me.' "'Don't be talking,' said the man. "'Take a sheet and be off with yourself. I have no time to lose on the like of you.' John grew in dread of the man, and taking the sheet, went out. When well away from the place, he turned to look at the castle and its owner. But if he did, there was nothing before him but fields and ditches. The time as it happened was Sunday morning, and Connor saw at some distance down the road people on their way to Mass. He hurried to the fields for fear of being seen by somebody. <coughs> Excuse me. He kept the fields and walked close to the ditches till he reached the side of a hill, and went along by that, keeping well out of sight. As he was nearing his own village at the side of the mountain, there happened to be three or four little boys looking for stray sheep. Seeing Connors, they knew him as the dead man buried three weeks before. They screamed and ran away home, some of them falling with fright, 
When they came to the village, they cried that they had seen John Connors and he with a sheet on him. Now, it is the custom in Ireland when a person dies to sprinkle holy water on the clothes of the deceased and then give them to poor people or to friends for God's sake. It is thought by giving the clothes in this way, the former owner has them to use in the other world. The person who wears the clothes must wear them three times to mass one Sunday after another and sprinkle them each time with holy water. And after that, they may be worn as the person likes. When the women of the village heard the story of the boys, some of them went to the widow, to the widow and said, "'Tis your fault your husband's ghost is roaming around in nakedness. You didn't give away his clothes.' "'I did indeed,' said the wife. "'I did my part, but it must be that man I gave them to didn't wear them to mass, and that is why my poor husband is naked in the other world.' Now she went straight to the relative and neighbor who got the clothes. As she entered, the man was sitting down to breakfast. "'Bad luck to you, you heathen!' said she. I did not think you the man to leave my poor John naked in the other world. You neither went to mass in the clothes I gave you, nor sprinkled holy water on them. I did indeed. This is the third Sunday since John died, and I went to mass this morning for the third time. Sure I'd be a heathen to keep a relative naked in the other world. It wasn't your husband that the boy saw at all. She went home then, satisfied that everything had been done as it should be. An uncle of John Connors lived in the same village. He was a rich farmer and kept a servant girl and a servant boy. The turf bog was not far away, and all the turf at the house being burned, the servant girl was told to go home down the reek. That's a long pile of turf. So, so, actually, there's a definition. And bring home a creel of turf. A creel is a word for basket. That's another definition here. She went to the reek and was filling her creel when she happened to look towards the far end of the reek, and there she saw a man sticking his head out from behind the turf, and he with a sheet on him. She looked a second time and saw John Connors. The girl screamed, threw down the creel, and ran away, falling every steps with terror. It was to the reek that Connors had gone, to wait there in hiding till dark. After that he could go to his own house without anyone seeing him. The servant girl fell senseless across the farmer's threshold, and when she recovered, she said, John Connors is below in the bog behind the reek of turf, and nothing but a sheet on him. The farmer and the servant boy laughed at her and said, This is the way with you always when there's work to do. The boy started off to bring the turf himself, but as he was coming near the creek, John Connors thrust his head out, and the boy ran home screeching worse than the girl. Nobody would go near the creek now, and the report went out that John Connors was below in the bog minding the turf. Early that evening, John Connor's wife made her children go on their knees and offer up the rosary for the repose of their father's soul. After the rosary, they went to bed in a room together, but were not long in it when there was a rap upon the door. The poor woman asked who was outside. John Connors answered that he was himself. "'May the Almighty God and his blessed mother give rest to your soul!' cried the wife, and the children crossed themselves and covered their heads with their bedclothes. They were in dread, and he'd come in through the keyhole. They knew a ghost could do that if it wished. John went to the window of two panes of glass and was tapping at that. The poor woman looked out where she saw her husband's face. She began to pray again for the repose of his soul, but he called out, Bad luck to you. Won't you open the door to me or throw out some clothes? I'm perishing from cold. This only convinced the woman more surely. John didn't like to break the door, and as it was strong, it wouldn't be easier for him to break it, so he left the house and went to his uncle's. When he came to the door, all the family were on their knees, repeating the rosary for the soul of John Connors. 
He knocked, and the servant girl rose up to see who was outside. She unbolted and unlatched the door, opened it a bit, but seeing Connor, she came near cutting his nose off. She shut it, she shut it so quickly in his face. She bolted the door and then began to scream, John Connor's ghost is haunting me! Not another day or night will I stay in the house if I live to see morning! All the family fastened themselves in a room and threw themselves into bed, forgetting to undress or to finish their prayers. John Connors began to kick the door, but nobody would open it. Then he tapped at the window and begged the uncle to let him in or put out some clothes to him, but the uncle and children were out of their wits with fear. The doctor's house was the next one, and Connors thought to himself, I might as well go to the doctor and tell all to him, tell him that the village has gone mad. So he made his way to the doctor's, but the servant boy there roared and screeched from terror when he saw him, ran to his master and said, John Connor's ghost is below at the door, and not a thing about a sheet on him. You were always a fool, said the doctor. There is never a ghost in this world. God knows, then, the ghost of John Connor's is at the door, said the boy. To convince the boy, the master raised the upper window. He looked out and saw a ghost there, sure enough. Down went the window with a slap. Don't open the door, cried the doctor. He is below. There is some mystery in this. Since the doctor wouldn't let him any more than the others, John Connors was cursing and swearing terribly. "'God be good to us,' said the doctor. "'His soul must be damned, for if his soul was in purgatory, it is not cursing and swearing he'd be, but praying. Surely tis damned he is, and the Lord have mercy on the people of this village. But I won't stay another day in it. I'll have to move town tomorrow morning.' Now John left the doctor's house and went to the priest, thinking that he could make all clear to the priest, for everybody else had gone mad. He knocked at the priest's door, and the housekeeper opened it. She screamed and ran away, but left the door open behind her. As she was running towards the stairs, she fell, and the priest, hearing the fall, hurried out to see what the matter was. "'Oh, father,' cried the housekeeper, "'John Connor's ghost is below in the kitchen, and he was with only a sheet on him.' "'Not true.' said the priest. There is never a person seen after parting from this world. The words were barely out of his mouth when the ghost was there before him. In the name of God, said the priest, are you dead or alive? You must be dead, for I said mass in your house, and you a corpse on the table, and I was at your funeral. How can you be foolish like the people of the village? I'm alive. Who would kill me? God, who kills everybody, and but for your being dead, how was I to be asked to your funeral? Tis all a mistake, said John. If it's dead I was, it isn't here I'd be talking to you tonight. If you are alive, where are your clothes? I don't know where they are, or how they went from me, but I haven't them sure enough. Go into the kitchen, said the priest. I'll bring you clothes, and then you must tell me what happened to you. When John had the clothes on, he told the priest the day the child was born, he went to Beaufort for sponsors, and being late, he met a gentleman who sent him back and forth on the road, and then took him to his house. I went to bed, said John, and slept till he waked me. My clothes were gone for me then, and I had nothing to wear but an old sheet. More than this, I don't know, but everybody runs from me, and my wife won't let me into the house. Oh, then, it's Daniel O'Donohue, king of Lochlan, that played the trick on you said the priest. Why didn't you get sponsors at home in this parish for your son as you did for your daughters? For the remainder of your life, show no partiality to son or daughter among your children. It would be a just punishment if more trouble came to you. You were not content with the will of God, though it is the duty of every man to take what God gives him. 
Three weeks ago, your supposed body was buried, and all thought you dead through your own pride and willfulness. That is why my wife wouldn't let me in. Now, your reverence, come with me and convince my wife, or she will not open the door. The priest and John Connors went to the house and knocked, but the answer they got was a prayer for the repose of John Connors' soul. The priest went to the window and called out to the open door. Mrs. Connors opened the door, and seeing her husband behind the priest, she screamed and fell. A little girl that was with her at the door dropped speechless on the floor. When the woman recovered, the priest began to persuade her that her husband was living, but she wouldn't believe that he was alive till she looked, took hold of his hand. Then she felt of his face and hair and was convinced. When the priest had explained everything, he went away home. No matter how large his family was in after years, John Connors never went from home to find sponsors. <laughs>